0: little children yet a little while i am with you you will seek me and just as i said to the jews so now i also say to you where i am going you cannot come a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love one another By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where am I going? You cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, you will lay down your life for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning again, Westside. We are glad that you're here. And as you can tell, we are in our sermon series entitled The Upper Room. And what we're doing is we are looking at the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Or rather, it's Jesus' final teaching to the 12 disciples that are there in the upper room. Um, At the beginning of the series, we passed out these bookmarks. And if you didn't get one, you can still get one out there in the information center because at the back of it, we have a Bible reading plan. And the way that this is mapped out is um, on Monday, you can read John chapter 13, Tuesday, John chapter 14, so on and so on. And so you can meditate and marinate in these scriptures. And then when you come on Sunday, your heart and mind is already full with these Bible passages. And and just to review where we're going with this, what we are doing is we are asking a fundamental question. And I sort of got burdened for this. Um, Every fall, we sort of do a vision series. And and the question was, um, what type of disciple do we want to form here at Westside? Like, Like, what is our goal here? And and we're asking this question, what are the marks of an upper room disciple? An upper room is distinct because Jesus had the 200, he had the 172, and then he had the intimate 12 that were there with him. And so we're asking, what are the marks? How can I look at an upper room disciple's life and, and measure that with my walk to Jesus? And if you see behind me, each week we're sort of putting the big idea up there to help guide us through the series. We said the very first mark was humble service when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It was incredible. And then week two, we got real positive and we said we're honest about sin, right? And, and we said that we're honest about sin because we have hope in a savior. Anytime we talk about sin, we have to talk about what God has done for sin. And this week as you see, it says healthy in community. And and I just want to set up where we're going today because the first week we said that the upper room disciples were literally entrusted with All of Christianity as we know it. Jesus, like he said in these verses, was getting ready to go and die on the cross, resurrect and ascend into heaven. And he says that that I'm leaving you. And Jesus Christ is leaving his ministry to these 12 knuckleheads, um, if you will, right? He's literally entrusting the gospel message with these 12 that he has discipled over these years, And when you think about the impact that these 12 had on the world, we are in Butler County, Popper Bluff, Missouri, Southeast Missouri in 2022 today, talking about what they did over 2,000 years ago. That's incredible when you think of that type of impact. But if you were to boil it down and you were to say, what's the thing, man? Because historians and sociologists are fascinated with the growth of Christianity. It starts out with a ragtag group of disciples, and then you get a few hundred more. Then the day of Pentecost, you get over 2,000 And then in some 200 or 300 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, history records that over 50% of the Roman population declared to be a Christian. There has never been, nor will there ever will be, such a growth in a movement like that. Historians are fascinated when they study it. And what I always try to do as your pastor is I always try to lay some historical reliability in front of you to let you know that, number one, the book you're holding in your hand is not a fairy tale, that that we can study these things in real time, real space, real events. There is historical facts when it comes to Christianity. But in the turn of the second century, as Christianity begins to spread, in Carthage, a theologian and church father rises up by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian is very significant in church history because here's why. When Christianity began to grow, people started having a lot of questions about it. I mean, just imagine the telephone game that you used to play in school. You start with one thing, you know, give the teacher an apple, and then you end in the classroom with, can we please play Fortnite? And you're like, how in the world did that, right? And it just begins to spread and get distorted. So these theologians rise up, and they're known as apologists. And, and what they do is they basically give a defense of what Christianity is, but Tertullian was really famous because, like Roman emperors sought out Tertullian to ask about what, what is Christianity and, and what does it mean, and, and what is its core essence and message? Tertullian pins a letter that's known now in history called "The Apology." And in the apology, he takes his time to break down from Jesus' teaching to the disciples what the core message of Christianity is. But in the letter, he also talks about what other people are saying about the Christians Now, remember, in just a couple hundred years, all of Rome, I mean, over 50% of Rome claims to be Christians, and it seems to be that all of Rome has heard of Jesus. So, what are non-Christians saying about Christians at such this early stage of Christianity? And listen to what Tertullian writes. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, they say, for they themselves will sooner put each other to death. Don't miss this. Tertullian writes and says, what is the world saying about Christianity? And when the world looked at the early church, they said this, see how they love one another. That was the distinguishing mark. That is what made Christians stand out to the rest of the world. Not miracles, not doctrine, not Bible knowledge. It was their mutual love for one another in such a way that the rest of the world said, that's different. That's distinct. We've never seen anything like this before. So I did um, some official data and research this week, some real facts-based stuff, and I did a Facebook poll, right? Because it's kind of like my granny says, right? I read it on the Facebooks, right? I just asked, um, what would a non-believer say that Christians are most known for? Now, listen, I'm not interested in a bashing session, okay? But there is some truth that I do think we need to understand, and when you look at all of the comments, what are Christians most known for by non Christians? I mean, you could come up with a list. Judgmental, by far, was number one. Intolerant, gossip, hypocrites, divisive. Now, I think some of those things might not be warranted, but I do think a lot of them, unfortunately, are. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus says the distinguishing mark is that it's going to be your love for each other. We see that in the early church. And in 2,000 years, something has been distorted and something has happened. And we have removed the main thing and we have put a distorted thing there. So what I want to do today is I want to look at these verses. Because in these verses, Jesus gives us the distinguishing factor okay? So just to put the jelly on the bottom shelf, what's the point of today? What are you trying to say? It is this, upper room disciples live healthy in community by loving one another. That's it. Upper room disciples live healthy in community, a healthy relationship, healthy community by loving one another. And now here's the deal. I could start the sermon and get a couple amens, and that's right, love for one another, and healthy in community, and that's right, and we got to get back to the basics. But here's the question. What does that love look like? What does this really look like? Like some boots on the ground. Man, I wish Jesus had did a really long sermon in an upper room the night before he's betrayed to his disciples so we could know... Well, I'm glad you asked. It's actually called the Upper Room Discourse and we're getting ready to study that. But listen, maybe, maybe you're a non-believer in the room today. And, and listen, we're so glad that you're here. Um, one of the things I would submit to you, and, and I know there's probably a lot of questions and you're like, man, you're asking a lot of me. Here's what I would keep in the forefront of your mind. What if, what if Jesus is the picture of the perfect human life? That's what I want to submit to you. Just at a very practical level. What if Jesus is the picture of the perfect human life? And even when it comes to our relationships with people, one of the things I'm fascinated in this series is is how Jesus has his relationships with the disciples. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be betrayal. There's all of these things. But what does it look like? What is the picture of the perfect human life? Well, I think that is Jesus. So what I want to do is I'm gonna break these verses down, and I see a few marks of what it really looks like to live in healthy community by loving one another. And the first one that I see is this: love sets boundaries. (laughs) That's just point number one. Okay. You're like, oh my goodness, I should have got the extra cup of coffee, right? Look at what it says there in verse 31. The points come from the passage. When he had gone out, well, who's he? Well, if you remember, um, we took a break one week, but the week before, we, we talked about Judas and the betrayal. And that's where we got this honest about sin and that Jesus loved Judas. He washed his feet, even though he knew what Judas was getting ready to do. And it even says he loved him to the very end. But Jesus shifts his teaching now. Now something's completely different. Look at what he says. Now when he had gone out, Jesus said, now. It's almost like I knew I had to get something out of the way. Something had to happen. I couldn't say this to everybody in the room Why? Because Judas wasn't safe. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas wasn't a safe person. So then when Judas leaves the room, Jesus transitions into his teaching. Now listen, I need to really break this down for us. Did Jesus give Judas every opportunity to his last breath to not make that decision? Yes. I mean, from washing his feet, from dipping the morsel of bread, from doing everything. Second question, did Jesus love Judas to the very end? Yes. Third question, did Jesus know Judas was not a safe person and had boundaries? Yes. I see this in the text. You know, we see this through the rest of the New Testament when the Apostle Paul is writing letters and one of the ironies is is that he's writing it to Christians and he talks about gossiping and backbiting and corros talk and hurting one another and he says constantly to love one another, to love one another. Can I just give you some, some real practical advice? If somebody is speaking ill to you, about someone else, all you need to do is set your watch because they will be saying the same thing about you to someone else. We're just boots on the ground today. It's right here in the passage that Jesus is saying that love uses boundaries. But here's what's important. When I say that, it's almost like giving you a loaded weapon because you're like, I knew it. That that person's so difficult, and I knew they weren't safe, and I've been hurt before, and all I needed, preacher, was the word go, and I'm on it, and I'm gonna make a hot phone call today and send a hot. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Before any of that, I think we have to look at the love that Jesus displayed to the very end, and here's what I would say to you: When we are setting loving, healthy boundaries. We must operate out of God's wisdom and not our wounds. Because oftentimes as human beings, what we have a tendency to do is to punish the current relationship for what the past relationship has done to you. And I would just say, I know that there's hurt. I know it's something that you've been dealing with. But the sacrifice that I see in Jesus' life is that he loves Judas to the very end. Love doesn't mean that we're a doormat. Love doesn't mean that we don't use wisdom. Love means using wisdom and setting healthy boundaries in a community setting. The first thing, love sets boundaries. The second thing that I see is this, love seeks God's greater glory. Look at, I mean, this is how we study the Bible, okay? If you look at verses 31 and 32, there's a word that's used a bunch. When he had gone out, Jesus said, um, now is the Son of Man glorified. Actually, when I say the word glorified or glory or anything like it, can you go, ding, okay? Now you're in the sermon. You got a job. Ding. Okay, here we go. When he had gone out, Jesus had said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified. In him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. All right, did you notice anything in the passage? A lot of dings, okay, right? Y'all are kind of dingy today. I'm just kidding. That was a that was a joke. Okay. All right. This is how we study the Bible. If if Jesus in two verses uses the word glory, glorified, this many times, the Bible's probably trying to tell us something. And and what the Bible is trying to tell us is Jesus isn't just living for his life, he is living to glorify the Father. And the Father lives to glorify the Son. And the Father sends the Spirit, and the Spirit magnifies. It's this beautiful relationship. But the verse is very confusing when you read it. It's like very clunky. It's like, I, I don't, what does this mean? Um, one theologian puts it this way when he summarizes these verses. The glory of God is manifest in the love which Jesus takes to the cross in a total offering of himself to the Father and in the love of the Father who sustains the Son to the end of loving obedience. Translation. Your relationships in everything that God has given you, primarily your relationships, are not about you. And they're not about your comfort and any of those things. And I think oftentimes when we walk into the setting of a church community, in a community of faith, we have almost like this honeymoon sort of stage. And we have crushing expectations that now maybe these people and this congregation and these relationships will finally fulfill. And, and I won't get agitated and I won't get frustrated and, and I won't get hurt. And none, like, have you read the New Testament? Like the Apostle Paul is so bold that he uses people's names he says at the end of the book of Philippians, like, yo, Lydia and Syntyche, y'all keep gossiping and arguing, and y'all need to stop that. The letters were read publicly on Sunday morning. So in order to be biblical, I have a list of names this morning. am <laughs> just kidding, okay? But what Paul is saying constantly in the New Testament is you've got to understand there's a greater point. There's a greater point. So what's the wisdom that we need when we have unrealistic expectations. Um, There's a theologian that rose during World War II named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was put to death for his love for Jesus. Um, He wrote tons of letters to his congregation from a concentration camp. And he said these words, those who love their dream of a Christian community More than they love the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on their way to destroying it. For he will build a temple to idols without even wishing or knowing it. We must confess it is he who builds. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him and he will build. Here's what I'm trying to say. The point of your relationships is to point to Jesus. It's not to fulfill your comfort. It's not to fulfill all of your desires. It's not to say, wow, with this group of people, I can fulfill my desire of control and always get my way. And then if I am challenged, that's bad. And then I leave. Listen, if there's one thing I can promise you, you're ready for this, this is great. If there's one thing I can promise you about getting involved in with a group of like-minded Christians is you will be disappointed and there will be frustrations. What Jesus is saying is is that we are protected by the covenant love and that the fruit of that relationship is on the other side of that reconciliation. Listen, love it sets boundaries. Love pursues God's greater glory. And then the third mark that I see is this. Love is not a feeling. It's a command. Yeah, I knew it'd go over about like that, right? (laughs) Like what? Listen, do you know how impossible it is sometimes to get up here? I mean, I got 30, 40 minutes, 50 if I'm angry, right? Okay, (laughs) to combat every second of every day That you have been living this week from commercials to social media to songs to everything that says love is a feeling. And if you don't feel loving, then you should abort that relationship and go find the feeling. And all I have to simply say is this. How well is that going for society? Like at what point, honestly, just honest question, at what point are we going to go, that's not working? When will we be so bold to say, I am sick and tired of a wake of devastation and a wake of bodies left behind through dysfunctional relationships? And finally go, maybe we can try another way. Because look at what Jesus says right here in the verse. It's so interesting. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. By the way, when the disciples heard this, they would have gasped. Okay, so this will be fun. I'm gonna read the phrase new commandment and I want you to gasp, right? God forbid we have fun in church. Here we go, ready? A new commandment. I give to you. Now, why would they have gasped? Well, because remember, Charlton Heston already gave them a bunch of commandments, right? Moses. I mean, they had the law. They had all of that. So who is this rabbi? Is this finally where like, oh, I knew it. I knew Jesus was crazy. I was just waiting for that crazy to come out, okay? Because now he's trying to add commandments to God's law. Do you remember the rich young ruler? when he comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, how do you read the law? And then he says all of these things. And then Jesus says, for the law is fulfilled in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what it all points to. This idea of love. But verse 34 is so important. I want to break this down. And and I almost in a way want to show you how you can meditate and marinate on Scripture. Because in verse 34, we have the why, the how, the who, the all of that. Okay? So if, if love is a command, if God is saying to be so bold and put it this way, love is actually not a fleeting feeling love is a future promise. And if you actually do the acts of love, despite how you feel, your feelings will catch up to your actions. I mean, we know this in every other area. I mean, there's mornings when we get, we don't want to read the Bible. But we know that there is a promise that God's word never returns void. Praying. We do this in all of our avenues of our life. But when it comes to loving relationships, because it's hard, we leave. But the first thing is this. Look, why do we love? Well, a new command I give to you. Jesus, second member of the Trinity, God in the flesh, is literally commanding this and saying this. Isn't it interesting how Jesus is so unlike any other ruler or king? When Jesus lays down a command, it's about love. I love that. Why do we do this? Because it is an act of obedience. But the second thing is this. Who do we love? Who do we love? Well, one another. Did you know that this phrase, one another, is used over 100 plus times in the New Testament? Really quickly, This is why what you're doing right now is so significant. This is why the simple phrase of, you know, I love the Lord, but, you know, I don't really mess with church and organized religion. You know, when I'm in the deer stand and I got Joel Osteen on the live stream, that's all I need. I'm there in God's creation and yes and amen. That's great. You're wrong. Love you. You're wrong, okay? Because you can't live out 99.9% of the commands in the New Testament in isolation. But here's what we do to distort that. When we hear the phrase one another, we think, oh, people I like. People who vote like me, think like me, love the things I love, do all of these things. And we constantly bounce between relationships in the church when there's a rub and we find out, oh, you're not really like me. Well, see ya, because I'm going to try to go find somebody that is. And then we just bounce around these relationships. I love what Bob Goff says. He puts it this way. If I'm only willing to love the people who are nice to me, the ones who see things the way I do and avoid all the rest, it's like reading every other page of the Bible and thinking I know what it says. That's good, okay? That's really good. What if, what if you're not seeing the, the move of God, the, the desires of your heart, the authenticity, the power the fruits of the spirit in your life because you keep bouncing around from relationships when God says, oh, no, no, no. The moment it gets hard, the moment it gets hard, that's when my power is displayed. You see, the world loves that way. You have to think like us, look like us, do all of these things. But when a diversity of people are a unity of people and they are bound together by the love of Jesus Christ and they're from different socioeconomic backgrounds, they're from different political agendas, oh my God, could there be such a place in all of the universe where people who think different politically can actually love one another? And I'm here to tell you, yes it is the church. It is this place. We have no agenda to a donkey or or an elephant or any. Get out of here with that mess, man. My allegiance is to the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. We do not live in a democracy. We live in a monarchy. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And the way that everything is happening in the world, I am weary to my bones. And we say amen, but look at our Facebook statuses. Look at what we are doing. When we judge someone because they watch Fox or CNN, are you serious? Are you that shallow? That we judge someone based upon something like that. And Jesus is saying, I have a divine love. A divine love that crosses races and genders and barriers and all of those. That the whole world says, see how they love one another. Until the church understands that, we are playing Sunday school. We can cross the globe and dig wells. But you can't take someone out to lunch that you disagree with? What are we doing? This is who we love. This is who we love. But how do we do it? I'm glad you asked because that's in the verse too. Why do we do this? Who do we do this to? And how do we do this? As I have loved you. That's the thing I wish she hadn't have said. Can I just, oh, am I not, the preacher not supposed to be honest in church, okay? When I meditate on that verse, the thing that's difficult is as I have loved you. So, guess what? Look up here, please don't miss this. You can't have your own standard for love. That stings a little bit. It's not your definition. <laughs> it's not, he doesn't give you the option. How did Jesus love us? For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's, initi- it's, it's initiatory. He takes the first step. He makes the first move. It is borderline unconditional, though yet using wisdom and boundaries. It is all of these things. What are we trying to say? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to define love, right? Because there's a bunch of, like, I, like, you know how difficult Hallmark makes my job? Okay, lifetime. And by the way, it's that time of the year, ladies, right? You got the new Hallmark one. Is he going to make it in time? Yep, he's going to have a golden retriever in his arms. He's going to make it down. You're going to walk down there to the Christmas tree. There he is. I didn't know. It's the same movie every time, okay? Where's me slick, man, all right? What, what is love, okay? And maybe don't hurt Okay, we can get that out of our system too, all right? Listen, here it is. Love is you before me. Not the dumb movie, me before you, okay? Love is you before me. Je, je, but what about the love is you before before me. No, no, no. I get that. But see, the thing, the problem in our marriage is, is for 15 years, I've always done, and she never, look up here. Ready? Don't miss this. Love is you before me. On the cross, Jesus absorbs the blows. You can try to define it any other way that you want, and it will never work. That is what love is. But I think here's where the struggle is. I think we are trying to offer something that you don't have. So any wedding that I do, I always do premarital counseling. And what premarital counseling is, is like trying to describe the ocean to a blind man. (laughs) It's exactly what it is. I've got these two lovebirds, just Tweety birds flying around their heads, sitting right there on the couch. And it's like, okay, you know, have you noticed any differences? How have you guys handled conflict? We're good. We're good. It's like, all right, well, come see me in a year. Okay? All right? You know? But here's the basis of it. You're not going to be able to love that woman. And you cannot love that man unless you have first received the love of Jesus. Bottom line, talk to anybody, anytime. Listen, you can't reflect Jesus's love until you've received it. And what if the struggle is, are you ready? Listen, I'm approaching to be 36 years old. And I'm realizing for the first time in my life, I don't receive love well. You see, the closer you get to Jesus, it's like the less you know of him and the more you find out about yourself. And I think that's like almost the point because you end up in this space and go, you know that and you chose me? You know that in my heart. That that thing I've been trying to hide from you, you You already know? And you still want me? Listen, until it is all that is left in your bones is marrow, it won't work. You have to have the love of Christ first. I think love sets boundaries. Love seeks God's greater glory. Love is not a feeling. It is a command. And the last thing is this. Love makes God visible. Dang, I was hoping you'd respond different. That's super clever, okay? Check this out in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the denomination that's on the front of your building. Oh, you guys don't have that translation? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by what you vote against. By this, all people will know that you were my disciples when you tell everybody about their sins. By the way that you love one another. The world does not need another, another picture of power. The world needs a powerful picture of love. Everywhere, there is a, there's a power move. And a power grab. And then here comes Jesus. Who has all authority and all power. And he lays it down. And he lays it down. It's so different. But you say, Jason, what do you mean makes God visible? I don't understand that. What do you mean? Well, John, same gospel, same gospel writer. In John chapter 1 is writing about Jesus. And he says these words in John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God. I mean, just think back and look at the Old Testament. It was a a cloud of smoke, a pillar of fire. There was one moment where Moses was like, I want to see your glory. Like, let's FaceTime, let's figure something out. How can we do this? And God's like, if anybody looks at me, they just die. I'm that holy, I'm that great. Moses saw like the back of God's shoulder as he passed by a mountain and his face glued for like two weeks. And people were like, don't come near us, man. All right, you, there is something going on right there, right? Because God is so other, he's so holy. But then it says that, that Jesus has made God known. That's why at Westside, we say God is like Jesus. So, so listen, if you're a doubter or a seeker, And you're like, what's God like? That's why we believe it's all about Jesus. God's like Jesus. That's what God is like. But Jesus ascended into heaven, and he left the church. And the church is the physical representation of the spiritual reality of who God is that when we love each other with our differences and with all of those things, the world says God is real. God does exist. Look at the way they love each other. They don't say God exists. Look at what they're against. God exists. Look at the way they love each other. And then this, here's the sentence. Our love for one another leads people to the source of our love which is Jesus. A lot more people have been won into the kingdom of God over a dinner table rather than a picket sign. And I can guarantee you that. It is the love for one another. So what does this look like? Well, in closing, as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, there's a phrase in this passage that I can't escape. It's haunted me all week. It's two words. Um, Maybe you noticed it. It's the little phrase, little children. Why do you say that? It's so endearing. It's so loving, little children. It's one of Jesus' favorite phrases. Did you know that this had such an impact on the apostle John that John is the only New Testament writer That uses this phrase in the rest of his letters. In 1 John, he uses it eight times alone. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. You know what's interesting? We know everything that happened to all 12 of the disciples in the upper room. We know how they literally changed the world, and we also know how they died. Every single apostle in the upper room died a martyr's death. If you want to know more about it, you can look it up in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Every one of them, Peter, was crucified upside down, stoned to death. All of those things, except one, John. You see, John, under a Roman emperor was ordered to be put in a vat in a cauldron of boiling oil with only his head sticking out so he could deny Christ and say, Caesar is God. But he never said it. And he didn't die. And they were freaked out of their mind. So they banished him to the island of Patmos, where John also writes the book of Revelation. The Apostle John, oh, don't miss this. The Apostle John goes on to live upwards of 90 years old. And Jerome, one of the early church fathers, only a couple hundred years after Jesus, writes this, that when John would preach to the church on the gathering, that they would carry him in in a chair because he was so old And they would sit him in the front of the church and everyone would get close because he had a very weak voice. And he would say this phrase, little children, love one another. And then he would look at them and say, little children, love one another. And he would say, little children, love one another. Jerome records that one church father was so puzzled by this because it's all John did towards the end of his life. I mean, John, you were with Jesus. You were in the upper room. Show us some miracles. Tell us something. Give us the deep doctrines. You were with Christ. And so one of the early church fathers asked him, Dear John, why do you say this phrase over and over? This is it. This is a whole sermon. John said, For this is the Lord's command, and if only this is done, it is enough. <laughs> no way. John, you walked with Jesus. You wrote books of the Bible. You know all the stuff, man. Give me deep doctrines. Let's talk about tongues. Let's talk about, ooh, let's get into it. Little children, love one another. So listen, the application point is one question today. And it is very simply this. If everyone at Westside was as loving as me, How loving would our church be? You see, it's it's not for someone else. It's for you. It's for me. Little children, love one another. For this is the command of our Lord. And it is enough. Father God, we come before you today so grateful for your word. So grateful that you do not command something that you have not supplied You command this because you've given this love for us. So Holy Spirit, empower us in this place today. God, convict those who need convicting. Comfort those who need comforting. Holy Spirit, you name people in this place today. But at the end of the day, may we just boil it all down and say the mark of an upper room disciple is that we live in healthy community, not in isolation, not perfect community, just healthy. And what's healthy? It's when we love one another through the hard times and the good. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray all of this in the holy and the mighty and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.